live from Utrecht. This is Bitcoin. Explained. Welcome back, Shores. Thank you. You were on holiday. That's why we were out for a couple of weeks. Where did you actually go? I'm not going to say. Is that is that your optax strategy? Exactly. Or just ashamed of where you went? Both. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Bitcoin Amsterdam is coming up just yep. a couple of months from now. You know what that means, right? Your uh, conference in Amsterdam. It means... It means having to go to Amsterdam. It means 420 Blaze It. That's why we're going to talk about hash today. Do you get it? Oh, that's, yes. that's the first pun. The first pun of the new season. I'm going to consider it as a new season and we're strong out of the gate with, <laughs> with fresh new puns for I, our listeners. I did expect you were going to make a, a, a pun around that topic. Yes. We are going to talk about hashes hash functions to be specific this is a topic that has come up here and there and it's obviously a topic that everyone knows something about mm -hmm. and you our dear listener might now think where well, you're talking about hashes we already know what hashes are but do you really do you really know what a hash is i no. didn't i thought i did but i i learned something in preparation for the show so you might as well sure so i'm going to start with the first basic question I think most people have a general idea of what a hash is, but still, sure, what is a hash? Well, it's it's basically a function that goes in one way. It garbles the input. So if you start with the word hello, then out comes some garbage. Yeah, and if you it, start with the word hello too, out comes some different garbage. Well, yeah, well, you say garbage, but what you really mean is a number. Yes. Data. Yes. Essentially zeros and ones yes but i mean everything is zeros yeah. and ones so yeah. that's why I'm a number yeah, yeah is exactly. that the best way to put it a number comes out a number goes in a number comes out and any data you can convert any data a picture or a song or as long as it's a digital you can convert it into a number and then you can put that number you can hash that number and you get a different number right yeah that's right okay now there are some important properties for a hash function to be a hash function. Yes. You can't just say multiply everything by two. If you do that, you get a different number, but that's not a hash function. Yeah. And a so hash function not, needs to do something specific. So what does it need to do? Yeah, it, ne it needs to make sure that if you, if, you, if you know the hash, like you can't just change it basically, or maybe a better way to say it is, so if you have the word hello and you hash it, it comes out a number. And then you shouldn't just be able to say, well, I want to make hello too. I'm just going to change the, the hash now. And then I know that it was hello too. Right. So what you're saying is. So if in your example of multiplying by two, let's say that the hash of the word hello is one. And if the hash of the word hello too is two, well, it's a little bit too predictable. Right. I mean, that would be a weird example. Maybe a better example would be if the hash of the word hello, hello was two. You know, it'd be very predictable because now if, if you know, I can take the number three and I can guess, oh, then the original must be hello, hello, hello. Yeah. So essentially, the outcome needs to be completely unpredictable. So if you change even this, if you hash an entire book, and then you hash the exact same book, but you change one period into a comma, the hash needs to be completely different, right? Yes, absolutely. And there needs to be no way to figure out which hash came from which book. 
Yeah, well, in particular, like, you shouldn't... Uh, unless you have the book, I should add. Yeah, I think one thing you want to prevent is the thing called collisions, right? So that means that if I take your book and now I change some comma in a very specific place that I would get the same hash, that's a problem. Because then I could show you two different books and they would have the same hash. And, and so now I've cheated because the whole point of the hash was to prove that, you know, I was actually referring to the book and not some other book. Right. So each piece of data should result in a different hash. Yes. Right. Okay. So that, that ties into my next question. And I'm not sure if we completely answered this question already, but so let's see if we did or didn't. What would it make? So some hash functions have been broken in the past. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean if a hash function is broken? Yeah, so then we can get into some numbers, I guess. Mm -hmm. So let's say the resulting hash is a number with, like, it's it's 64 bytes or 256 bits, right? 256 bits, that's the hash. And that means there are 2 so to that, the power 256 possibilities, right? Yeah, and that bits are literally the zeros and ones that right. I mentioned so earlier. 256 zeros and ones, that's the, that's the hash itself. Yeah. So that means that if you have a, some piece of text, say the word hello, and that results in, a, in this hash, now the question would be, can you find another word that results in the same hash? Mm -hmm. uh, for, some, for example, the word hello too. Mm -hmm. And if the hash works really well, then this should you just have to guess. You would try, you know, two to the power of 256 different words or different sentences until you get the same hash as hello. And that should take a very long time. Now, the hash is very broken if it doesn't take a very long time. If it turns out that you can just try maybe a hundred different things, and then you find a duplicate hash or a collision. Right. So as soon as any hash collision is found, which has happened with previous, or I, I, I'm not sure why, with older hash functions. So as, as soon as any collision is found, is at that point the hash function considered broken i don't know what the exact criteria is but you know you can you can try and measure it so if for example it should take two uh, two to the power of 256 attempts but in practice it you know you can do it once in a hundred times then obviously it's broken but if it takes two to the power of 255 attempts you know, that's still a huge number so right. there might still be some practical limit but you know, if you're probably in the case of this, if you if you're able to find a single collision, that means the odds are already too high because it should really never happen with that big of a number. It's such an astronomical number that it should take you longer than the age of the universe to try all these combinations. So if you find something in less than the age of the universe, that's that's a really bad sign. And if you do find something, it would it was presumably in less time than the age of the universe. Yes because you know you're alive and so in in historical examples there have been hash functions that were able to be broken earlier see if i can find the list or you might have it yes so for example there was md5 i think and md5 was supposed to be 128 bit of hash so that's two to the power of 128 attempts that is a very long time not mm -hmm. as long as 256 um, or the age of the universe but still that's still age of the universe like long longer than that but 256 oh, is. is even longer. Right. Yeah, yeah. But Because 128 bits is the security of a 12-word mnemonic. So if you have 12 words written down, the 12-word seed, that is 128 bits. Got it. 24 one is 256 bits. Right. So it's it's 
should be very, very secure. However, it turns out that somebody was able to find a collision with only 2 to the power 18 attempts. Right, and I see. that is roughly, I should not try to do that off my head, but I think it's less than a million. Right, so so in that case, the hash function is considered broken. It's completely broken, because yeah. if you can, you know, brute force a, a million different words on a computer, like a million different passwords, to guess what the hash means, that's that's nothing. You can do that in a very short time. Yeah, and you just used the word brute force. Is that the only way to break a, a, a hash function in this way or in this... Is, well, or, or can no, you brute, also brute force should not help you at all, right? Because that should take you the age of the universe. No, but it's usually a combination with some trick, right? whatever that trick is, and then brute force. Right, yeah, that was going to be my question indeed. So there's a more pointed way to try and break it. You're, you're using some kind of strategy to break it then. Yeah, but you're still probably brute force looking, but you have a better idea where to look. Right, got it. Is that the is is this the only or at least the main failure mode or m failure model of a hash function? Yeah, that that's when the hash function itself would be considered a failure. Right. right? But there are ways that you can use hashes that make you more prone to failure. So for example, there are websites that store passwords. Well, they store they don't store the password. That's really bad. But there are websites that store the hash of a password. Yeah, right. And now let's say that that hash is not very good, or even if it is very good, actually. Somebody could make something called a rainbow table. So somebody would say, well, what if the last password is uh, hello? What if the password is hello too? And they calculate the hash for each of these passwords. And then if you find a leaked database with all these passwords, you can you know, very quickly guess which password belongs to which hash because you have this lookup table. Right. It's basically you're just entering passwords yourself, seeing what the hash is, and then re remembering that. And then if someone pops up using that hash as a password, then you can link the two, right? Yeah, that, and that's, that's not a mistake in the, in, the, in the hash function. That's just the way that you're using it. And the solution yeah. to that is called a salt, which means that every time you store a hash, you before you do that, you add something to it, to the, to, to the original text like just the word salt or something or one two three four and then you hash it and then that means that these tables are of no use right which means the the attacker will have to calculate you know have to get have, will have to guess a password and then do this calculation it just makes it more work for the attacker so th this reminds me of something that i've been wondering about for a while <laughs> And somehow I think this is going to be... Well, let, let's see. So I've, I've always wondered about this and I've never thought about it for much longer than 10 seconds, but maybe you have the answer. Okay. So when I enter a password, like I'm, I'm creating a new account on a website and I'm entering my password there and then the website tells me, no, no, no that password is no good because you need to use a capital letter and you need to use a number and a special whatever... If the website is only getting my hash, then how do they know I'm not using a capital letter or a number or any of that? Well, if you're really lucky, then your browser is actually doing these checks. But usually, unfortunately, sadly, you are sending the actual password to the server. And the server is looking at that password, comparing it. Uh, well, when there's a new password, it's just looking at the password. And then it tells you what's wrong with it. The only right, good right. Thing so is they're that storing it in a hash, ideally. Yes. But the first time you're creating your account, you're actually sending him your and every time same you, text password. Yeah, and every time the, you log the, in. That that is sort of the easy answer to my question, and I was hoping that there was a more sophisticated solution. 
They're, they're, I was hoping they were they had a more sophisticated way of dealing with that, but basically you you're just trusting them to not. I'm store sure your there password. are theoretically better ways to do this, right. but I don't think they're used. At least they're usually not used. Okay, well, this was a little bit of an off-topic question. Let's let's move on to the probably more most important question of the of this entire episode. Here it comes. So, yours, what actually? So we've now explained what a hash does, but how does a hash do it? How does a hash function actually do it? Like, what's going on? What's the magic sauce? Yes. Well, it really does to me. It just looks like magic. So what happens is. Every piece of text that you put into a hash function, you can just represent as a series of zeros and ones, basically bits. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is the hash function will look at, will take little chunks of it. So we'll cut it into chunks, say of 64 bits. In it will cut the whole text in 64 bit chunks, mm -hmm. and then it will say, okay, for each chunk, I'm going to look at the first bit, and I'm going to flip it around and move it to the third position. And then I'm going to take the second bit and I'm going to flip that around twice and move it to the first position. And I'm going to take the third bit and I'm going to uh, not flip it around, but compare it to the first bit and, and, and say, I want the inverse of the two bits added up together or something like that. So you're basically just, just doing this random, well, not random, but specifically designed way of scrambling the original text. And you repeat that for every 64-bit chunk. And that results in this this hash. Right. So this was in, it, this is what I mentioned at the start of the episode. This was for me kind of probably the most surprising thing. But it looks very much like sorcery or like you know whatever. The, well, but the thing is, it really isn't. Like it's really just a design that was designed by someone with the specific intent of just shoveling bits around in a specific way. Yeah, it's but, less but in elegant. terms of design, it's not like they have a magic. They have an absolute formula of how to make something random. It's just that if you do these operations, people have found that that is enough to make it really random. Right. Yeah. In my mind, there was some sort of elegant math trick or something. But when I was looking at it, into it more closely, it really seemed like more mechanical. It's, it it is a des a designed algorithm by someone who. That, that does something deterministically, but then the results should be random as far yeah. as we can hope. Well, it's predictably random, right? It's pseudo-random because for anything that goes in, you know exactly what's going to come out. So in that sense, it's not yeah, random. But, sure. but it, it looks random if you if you plot it, for example. If you, if you represent the output as a number, then on a chart, then the number might be 1, and then the number might be 256, and then the number might be 128, and, and that should look completely random, should look like noise. Right, so that's the way to test it. You basically chart out the results, and just by looking at the chart, it should look random enough. Exactly. I'm sure there's a more mathematical way to prove that. But yeah. I guess so, yeah. yeah. But but that's how you prove it, right? Yeah. Okay, and so there have been a number of hash functions uh, mm -hmm. So which one does Bitcoin use? Well, Bitcoin uses at least two or three. The most important one, I would say, is called SHA-256, which is part of the SHA-2 family. Yeah, um, what does SHA stand for, Shores? If you had asked me that earlier, I would have told you. Well, I, I can tell you okay. because I, was, I didn't know either, but it just stands for Secure Hash Algorithm. Okay, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. The, the little nuggets See, nuggets of knowledge you get from this podcast. Exactly. And that proves that it's, it is secure. There you go. Well, 
Well, we'll get to that there's such a thing as a non-secure hash, which is not always a bad thing. But yeah, the SHA-256 one is important. It basically means that whatever you throw into it, you'll get back 256 bits of data. And that happens to be this, well, the size of a transaction identifier, but all the size of a block hash, because a block hash is the SHA-256, or actually the double SHA-256, so you just do it twice mm -hmm. of a block. Of yeah. the contents of a block. Oh, okay, before we get, because that will be the next and last part of the episode, I guess, is how hashes are used in Bitcoin. So we'll get there in one minute. Okay. But very briefly, before we get there, can we, so there have been several hash functions since, so when was the first hash function introduced, invented, proposed? I, I, as far as I know, in the 1970s. But yeah. I haven't done super deep research, but it's not that old. So, so the I think the general idea was known or was suspected that there are mathematical operations, which this is, that will take some input and will produce predictably garbage output and that you cannot go back from the output to the input. So it's a one-way function. Hang on, you just use the term one-way function. So one-way function is an umbrella term for mathematical tricks, functions that are easy to calculate in one way and harder in the opposite direction. I would right? say impossible in the other direction. So this, this is distinct from the elliptic curve cryptography where it's very hard to go one way. In the, so it's very easy to go from a public key to a... Sorry, it's very easy to go from a private key to a public key. It's very hard to go from a public key to a private key, but it's mathematically it's possible. Wait, so wouldn't you... But a hash, it is not possible to go back. Right, but wouldn't a, I, I, this is just how we apply terms, maybe this is not the most interesting thing, but wouldn't you consider both one-way functions? Like, wouldn't one-way function be the umbrella term for both it, of these it things? It could or? be, I don't know if mathematicians look at it that way, so you'd okay. have to ask them. Sure. I mean, they're, they are different in the sense that one of them, you can, in theory, go back from a mathematical point of view, it's, it just goes both ways, mm -hmm. and these hash functions, really, they don't go back. Yeah, I, at least... Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, a but anyway, so a one-way function is a, an umbrella term. At least that's how you use it for mathematical functions that can only go one way. And then yeah. a hash is a good example of that. Yeah, and and a very useful example of that, right? Because a simple one-way function could be take the take the input and then output zero, always. That's that's one way. Sure. Just right. Not useful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. As far as I know, at least. One-way functions have been sort of considered and discussed within the, the circles of cryptographers since the early 70s. It's also what inspired Diffie and Hellman to come up with public key cryptography. Uh, and then the first hash functions were like the late 70s. And that evolved from, I think the first one, was it called MDA? Was that... Am I saying it Good. right? MDA, yeah. I think that's that's what I had in mind as possibly the first one or the oldest one. It could be and much older, I think, because that's the 1990s, and I think there were some ones in the 1970s too. But Okay, possibly. But then, so where I'm getting at really is, so where does Bitcoin's hashing algorithm come from? Who designed it? How did it develop over the years? Because it started with... MDA, I think, somehow, and then it evolved into SHA. Uh, yeah, I mean, it may have started, like I said, with something even older, but generally what happens is somebody designs this hash function in the way we just described, and then it turns out there's a collision 
or it's too easy to find collisions. And so somebody tweaks, usually just tweaks it a little bit, like adds one little operation that flips another bit. You know, it takes the left bit and moves it to the right. And just a slight change and then hope, praise that it works better. That seems to be, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm not doing it justice here, but but generally the they're constantly based on each other. So the other one that's in Bitcoin is... I, I think MDA was designed or at least based on the design by Ronald Rivest, which is also the R in RSA, one of the three designers of the RSA algorithm. And then that design inspired SHA and wasn't SHA designed by the NSA? Didn't they have a hand in the design? They, they always have a hand in all these things. I don't know those specific details, who is involved with the what. What I do know is that no, the Europe... it is, because okay. while we're discussing this, I have my phone in my hand and I'm scrolling through Wikipedia. I did this before the show, but I'm just making sure. that Yeah, no, it was designed by the NSA. Okay. Is this something you're? we should be worried about? This was the pre-Snowden NSA, right? Uh, I mean, it was the NSA that was going to war yeah, in, on in... encryption in the 90s. Well, well, you wouldn't go to war over something if you thought it didn't work. But the, th- that wasn't about hash I functions, I think. That was mostly about public key encryption. Yeah, it was. But what I was trying to say is that the Europeans didn't trust the NSA. And so they came up with this uh, RIPEMD, or I don't know how you would pronounce it. But it is basically a variation of SHA-2 or of SHA, where they just, you know, if you read the original paper, you can see, oh, yeah, we changed a few bit flips here and there, but we didn't want to deviate too much from the original algorithm because we know it works. But uh, but one of the problems is, you know, who? how do you pick these these little bits and, and things and operations? It looks very arbitrary. And that means that, you know, if, if, you're, if you don't trust the person who made it, you might be worried that they build in some sort of sneaky backdoor, some vulnerability that they know, but you don't know. Yeah. And then one way to defend against that is well, there's two things. One is that the NSA would say, well, this is how we, you know, how we designed it. And that's all arbitrary. But here's like a series of numbers of like one plus five plus 17 plus like 15 different, like a very elegant looking series of numbers and say, well, if you just add this to it and then it still works. And that kind of proves like, well, these numbers are so elegant that they probably were chosen you know, randomly or something. That's, that's one way. And the other were thing is you just change not. it, that they were. Or that the that the end result could not have been tempered with, because you're saying you're adding so much stuff to it that is very hard. That makes it more difficult to design a malicious system. But it's it's still a bit hand wavy. Mm. And the other thing you would do is what the Europeans did, I guess. They just changed it a bit, not too much, but a little bit, so that any backdoor that might have been in there would be broken. Right. Okay. Let's let's move on to what this podcast is or at least promises to be about in in the title how does hashes hash is really maybe the core fundamental building block for bitcoin wouldn't you say well it's certainly so, quite useful yeah <laughs> it's used here and there yeah. so where is where are hashes used Sure. So what, what does, how does, well, how do hashes help Bitcoin? Well, for one thing, every block, if you, if you take the entire contents of the block, that's hashed and, you know, descriptively called the block hash. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that this hash of the block, well, first of all, the block itself consists of transactions. And so every transaction also has a hash. So that's two use cases. Which is the transaction ID. Yeah. Now blocks link to each other. So the, you know, one block links to the previous block 
and the way it links to that block is using the hash of that block. Because the hash itself of a block is not in the blockchain, the block is in the blockchain, mm-hmm. and then your computer just reads the block and then figures out, okay, this is the hash. And so the next block will mention that hash, and that's how you know that the next block actually builds on top of the first one. Yeah. This, again, is why you really don't want collisions, right? Because if it was possible to create another block with very different transactions in it with the same hash, you would have a problem. Yo, what is going on, guys? We are proud to have Voltage as a sponsor of this episode. How many of you developers out there have wanted a streamlined infrastructure provider for your particular project? Well, I'll tell you what, Voltage is the Bitcoin infrastructure provider you have been looking for that makes building on Bitcoin quick and easy, whether it's Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, BTC pay, and so much more. But don't take it from me. Just ask the guys over at Amboss, Sphinx, Podcast Index, and Thunder Games, and so many others that you guys already know and love. Their enterprise-grade products make it fast and easy to build, deploy, and scale your next project. So make it easy on yourself. Even normie plebs can use the dashboard or API. Don't wait before the next block confirmation. Let your team focus on building great products and let Voltage handle all the rest. Voltage is your go-to zero-management Bitcoin infrastructure solution. Right. Uh, what, what would be what would be the problem exactly? Well, let's say the first block creates and creates you know twenty five Bitcoin and sends it to you, and everybody accepts that block and builds on top of it, and then that means you will have that Bitcoin forever, essentially, until you decide to move it. But now I come in, and I create a new block where that twenty five Bitcoin actually goes to me, and I find a way to produce the same hash of the block, which is impossible. But if I were able to produce the same hash, then I could send everybody else my block and they you know, they would look at the hash and say, okay, that's definitely the, a valid hash of that second block in the blockchain. So all the blocks are still connected. So that means that existing users wouldn't be tricked in this case, right? Because they would already have the block and they have no reason to replace it. Mm-hmm. But any new person downloading the blockchain would, have a, would be confused because they would just get the, the fake block. But it's not fake in any sense that the Bitcoin software cares about because it would have the same hash. Right. So there would be two different blocks with the same hash with very different events, and that would be a complete disaster. Right. So hashes are used to link blocks together into a blockchain. Yep. And then the other thing about a block hash is that it also determines whether the block itself is even valid in the first place. Well, that's the proof of work part. Right. Right. So what happens is that this hash is just 256 bits. And so what, what you can do, and that's what proof of work essentially does, is it says the first several bits need to be zero, or roughly like need, the whole hash needs to be lower than a certain number, but it doesn't really matter. You could see it as, okay, so we're going to require that the first 10 zeros, the first 10 bits of the block are zero. And then you can, because the only way to figure out what a hash is is brute force, the only way to get 10 zeros is to just try ten, 2 to the power of 10 different things. Yeah. And so the, the thing you would change in the block, you'd have to change something in the block to get a different hash. And so one of the things you would change is the nonce in the header of the block. And so, Which is just a random number. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's just a random just number. Add a, add a random that. number to a block, and then you get a different hash, and then you exactly. check if the and hash then, is valid. If not, you try again with a new random number. Yeah, exactly. And the one thing that's in the block is the timestamp. So every second that... Timestamp changes as well. So there's a couple of things there and uh, there's some trouble around it that we don't have to go into. Yeah. But that's basically how the proof of work works. Yeah. 
it's so it's using this this fact that the hashes are random which means you cannot there's no way to say i'm just gonna put 10 zeros in front of this at the start of this hash and then figure out the rest of the hash later you can't do that right okay so that's blocks transactions what well, one detail about transactions that's maybe kind of interesting to mention before we move on is that the hash of a transaction doesn't include the entire transaction, right? Because it doesn't include the signature, most notably. Not in SegWit, yeah. Because because the signature needs to sign. Well, because uh, we, we want to be right compatible to... with old nodes. Mm -hmm. So as far as all the nodes before SegWit is concerned, everything no, in the transaction is hashed. But as far as uh, SegWit no, no, is no, 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 that, that's a, you, you can't. The, the signature was not hashed because then you can't sign the transaction. That's different. So the signature, so there's two, there's two hashes involved here. Right. One is, what I was describing is to refer to another transaction. That's right, using right. the hash and that covers the entire transaction. Well, minus the, the, the SegWit stuff at the moment. Okay, yeah. And then the transaction itself has a signature, but the signature, of course, cannot refer to the signature itself. So mm -hmm. in order to make a signature, you don't take the hash of the transaction. You take certain chunks of the transaction and leave the rest. You set it to zero and then you sign that hash. Right. So you take chunks out of the transaction, you hash that, and you sign that. Yes. And now the whole package is hashed again, which is what is referenced by other transactions. Am I saying that right now? Yeah. So other transactions don't refer to the SegWit part of a transaction. Right, right, right. But the way that's solved is because in the Coinbase of every block, there is a there is a hash that does refer to all these things. Okay, so a hash is actually used twice, even on the in a single transaction. Yeah, in multiple ways. Yeah, exactly. In, in multiple ways. Yeah. Okay, so that's blocks, transactions, proof of work. I mm -hmm. think most people knew that, or at least kind of knew that. And then, but there's more ways in which hashes are used. Hashes are used. So yeah. it's used now in Taproot. Well, maybe easier to say, well, yeah, in Taproot, that's right. For the, if you have this tree with multiple conditions, multiple ways that you can spend the script, that tree uses hashes and that go into a Merkle tree. Mm -hmm. We've described that in a different episode. Yeah, let's not get into the whole Merkle tree. But that's where you have hashes. Again, SHA-256. Mm -hmm. Then you have addresses. Originally, anyway, addresses would, you would start from a public key and then you would take the SHA-256 hash or double SHA-256 hash of the public key. Mm -hmm. And then you would take this European RIPEMD hash of that hash and that would be your address. Oh, that that in that part of Bitcoin or at least, yeah, that's where they used, we used, Bitcoin used the European? Both. But and that, both, that may but... have been some like, ah, well, I don't trust either thing by Satoshi. I haven't read the history of why he did both. Oh, actually, uh, Satoshi introduced that. As far as I know, yes. The, oh, this address uh, format has been in, in there from, from the beginning. But with Taproot, there's no longer a hash involved in the address. Okay, I see here in the notes that it is, are hashes used in the random number generation part of in general, I, I guess that would be creating private keys. Or yeah. Private key so seed. in in general, when you create the the seed, hmm. the randomness that uses a random number generator, and mostly that's done by your computer itself. Though there is also some code in Bitcoin that adds some extra randomness. And and generally, random number generators use hash functions in all sorts of weird ways. Hmm. Might be a little bit out of scope, but the idea is like a because a computer doesn't have a way to actually throw dice. So it needs to get randomness somehow. And what it 
does ten, tends to do is like it, it'll look at what time it is. It'll look what's on its hard drive, which would be the result of, you know, many months of random things happening to it. It might maybe look at the temperature sensor of the CPU or, or things like that. And then hash all those things and hash those things again. And, and that's where the random numbers come from, more or less. Right. But and, you, so, and also, so you mentioned that something that your computer does and then the Bitcoin software does it again? Does a little does, bit more. Does it a little yeah, bit Yeah, the more. idea is if you have some random data from one source, you can mix it with random data from the other source. And as long as one of those two sources is really random, you're fine. So it just makes it better. If you have bad random data and you mix it with good random data, the result is good random data. Right. Anything else? Well, yeah, the other thing is uh, if you have a seed, so you start with the 12-word mnemonic in order to go from that to individual keys that are derived from your wallet, mm -hmm. you know, unique addresses, that uses hashes too. How does it use hashes? Well, it it derives like the next key from it. And I think the, so each... the derivation involves a bunch of hashes inside of it to go from the private key to the next private key. It's, it's not just plus one. It's like plus the hash of something, plus the hash of something else. Right. Plus one. So each new private key is basically a hash of a previous private key. Okay, uh, yeah, higher up in the tree. Yeah. Right. Right. And another place where we use it a little bit more fun is the, uh, the address bucketing system. We talked about eclipse attacks many episodes ago. Yeah. And one of the things we described is that when a Bitcoin node learns about other Bitcoin nodes, it has to store all these, these IP addresses of the other nodes and it doesn't store those in one giant list. It, it divides those over a bunch of buckets. And the way to decide which IP address that you've gossiped around, which IP address goes in which bucket, also involves a hash function. So you take a, a hash of the IP address and then you say, okay, if the hash is one, it goes in bucket one. If the hash is two, it goes in bucket two, etc. Right. So it's basically a way to just get a random number in that, in that yeah. sense. And in this case, the security of the random number is not that important. So you don't need the secure hash algorithm, SHA. Mm -hmm. You can use a simpler hash function that is faster basically because that's the trade-off right it's, it's just you can do hashes faster but then you're not going to get them perfectly random but that's okay for this purpose so what which one does it use i think this one's called sip hash Got i it. don't know what it stands is this, for is it designed for bitcoin no no it's older okay this doesn't refer to sipa no okay just making sure okay so we've ha we've mentioned hashes are used in blocks transactions proof of work which is also part of blocks but either way addresses merkle trees the random number generation and key derivation it's used inside versus various cryptographic operations so when you make a signature right you're hashing you're making a hash before you sign it plenty of hash in bitcoin Yep, it's everywhere. Okay, I think that's all right. I think so, George. So thank you for listening to Bitcoin Explained.